Welcome back, friends, fellow philosophers, and authors to this Wild Isle writing cast. I have back with me, after a long pause, the dark and evil wizard, Nathaniel Cumberledge. How are you doing, Nate? Oh, pretty decent. Can't complain. Just being decent. Yeah, (laughs) I was about to say a decent dark wizard. Uh, I'm glad to have you back. This is a topic I think that we are going to enjoy quite a bit. We're going to be talking about speculative fiction versus prescriptive fiction, and we're going to try and hammer out what these terms are really referring to, as we like to do here on the podcast. But before we begin, we must shill, my friends. So uh, I'm going to send you over, if you're listening to this when it comes out, uh, to my website, wildislelit.com. The first place I want you to check out is our Kickstarter campaign. There's only a couple weeks left, uh, and we are hurting very badly. But if you want to make a miracle happen, go over there, throw a few dollars, get on the shout out list, get in the books, the several books, not several, it's six, but get into six books for the backer list by throwing in just $5. Or you could get a guaranteed free, uh, well, not really free because you're paying for them in the Kickstarter, but you're going to get signed copies. There's all kinds of rewards I set up for you guys. Please check that out. Also, while you're there at wildisledit.com, check out my fiction and my essays pages. I've updated those and I've been uploading to them semi-regularly, uh, trying to get in one of one of them a week. So uh, I've had a, a lot of fun posting there. I'm putting in audio using 11 Labs, so a lot of times you have some very interesting voice, often Dagoth Ur from Morrowind, narrating cool stuff. So uh, check it out, particularly the Barbie film analysis. I did a whole breakdown on that film. So if you want to hear a supervillain talk about how it's secretly anti-woke, go over there. Uh, or if you're an editor, an editor, I'm an editor, and I'm looking for you, the author. You can pick up all the skills I learned at grad school for a fraction of the price by subscribing uh, over at wildislelit.com slash editing to the Wild Isle style guide. Or if you're just looking to have your manuscript sharpened, I've got just oh, word count packages there as well. So check that out. Is there anywhere else I want to send you? Um, I don't know. Check out my novel, One Smoke Broken. Uh, it is a weird fantasy fiction novel that has, I've been told, because <laughs> I called it like a, almost like a Western literary fantasy novel, but I guess people are saying it's more like Victorian-esque gas lamp with almost steampunk, but not quite in a fantasy setting. I don't know. Go decide for yourself. The whole thing is for free on my website, by the way, in audio. So you can listen, again, to Dagoth or read the whole book on my website, wildoutlet.com. Go to the audiobook section. Uh, there's a section, I think it's uh, just labeled audiobooks. Click on that. There you go. All for free. It's also on YouTube. There's no excuse. Listen to my book. Leave reviews. Tell me what you thought of it. Without further ado, let's get into the topic today. Oh, wait. Nate, do you have something that you would like to shill? No. <laughs> mm. See, Nate is not... A, I'm not going to make that joke and get kicked off of YouTube. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, speculative versus prescriptive fiction. I'm kind of uh, dropping this on Nate at the last second. So, Nate, what I'm going to do to start out so you're not coming in this lost is give you, uh, in very short, my thoughts here and then let you tell me what you think about them. Okay. So, this comes following a conversation with Michael H., uh, also known as Eternus, who is a very good author and he delves much more into science fiction than I do. And we talked about uh, essentially 
science fiction and its relationship to setting. Uh, I think it was World Welding was the name of that podcast. And it really had me thinking about the idea of speculative fiction uh, and what it really means and how it differs from, well, what would be non-speculative fiction and what would we call that? So I came to the conclusion that we have speculative fiction, which is fundamentally descriptive. And then we have prescriptive fiction, which is more closely related to things like our uh, hero's journey stories and things that lean very, very heavily into some type of archetypal narrative. So I'll go over these. Uh, we'll start with speculative fiction, and then we'll talk about the prescriptive fiction, because I don't want to have it be me rambling too long. But I have for speculative or descriptive fiction. This is a piece of fiction in which the theme is essentially if some setting element is specific setting element or set of setting elements are altered that impacts the character and plot development in a uh, speculated or described way, right? So the idea is literally we are speculating if we are to change something about the world that we know and live in, uh, what does that do to the characters that would be like the people or the plot, the way things resolve. Um, my argument here is that speculative fiction, the, let's say, thematic typing, I guess we could call it, for lack of a better word, lends itself to hard science fiction, also to soft science fiction a bit, but better to hard science fiction. Um, it is something that uses, uh, that uh, term Michael told me, counterfactuals. Uh, so these are those setting elements that have been altered or changed. Um, and it has a focus on deterministic logic, right? Because it's if it's if you change this element in the setting, how does that change how the people act? That assumes that you can predict how human beings act. So it kind of in a strange way is a little bit more uh, in line with the naturalism and realism movements that came with uh, let's say modern theater um, and also a lot of modern and postmodern fiction. Uh, it assumes that you would say human beings act in that deterministic fashion. Um, now, that's not going to be entirely true, but in general. Uh, it looks at the world as a place of things. We got this from Jordan Peterson, right? So we have two different ways of looking at the world, one of which is seeing it as a place of objects in which uh, those objects have particular properties and interact in a predictable fashion. Uh, and lastly, and then I'll let you let you actually get a chance to talk here, Nate. Speculative fiction is essentially like the future tense version of historical fiction, right? Like it, we've got a world that we inhabit, and for the most part, for the most part, but speculative fiction is is like an alternative. It could actually, in a way, be an alternative history because that's a form of speculation. Uh, but most of the time, it ends up being a speculation about the future if given events change or if something was different and you could do it in the present as well like okay if this was this element of the reality was different what would our current state of being look like so those are my thoughts on speculative fiction nate um what do you think about any and all of that um i uh whenever you talk about the two camps idea i don't think that they're necessarily mutually exclusive uh things but admittedly most of these kind of stories tend to like lean more towards one or the other but yeah uh 
so speculative fiction definitely hinges on the idea of like there being like central setting elements that people react to as opposed to it being primarily set dressing like it is in stuff that is more uh prescriptive as you were saying uh the archetypal story so like star wars is very much not speculative fiction because in a way star wars could probably be set anywhere and with like moving around setting dressing elements it just becomes like you can turn it into a high fantasy family drama set during some kind of war against a tyrannical king or something as just one example but like something like Rendezvous at Rama, uh, which is a speculative science fiction story about humanity, uh, like a realistic view of humanity's first contact with an alien object coming into the solar system. Uh, that's that would be very hard to transplant to another setting because it's mostly about uh, the human's reaction to this odd situation. But uh, yeah. Yeah, and one of the things I noticed about that that you just pointed out, in case the listeners didn't catch catch it with my long diatribe, is you pointed out that it's like the story could not be told if you were to change the setting. It just could not, right? Yes. Um, I was thinking just now, a lot of speculative fiction tends to be, uh, you tend to find a lot of pessimism in it. Uh, I noticed that particularly uh, classic science fiction, right? There is a huge amount where it ends horrifically, right? For the characters involved. It seems to me that rather than teaching like a moral, sort of like a fable does, or having a, um, a lesson in that form, when we're looking at speculative fiction, it's almost a forewarning. Uh, you know, on rare occasions, I'm sure there are stories that say, hey, we could achieve greatness if only we did this. Um, I tend to to be hesitant about any of those types of books. But um, nonetheless, it seems like what speculative fiction lets you do by focusing in on the change in the setting is it allows you to create a book where you have a very, um, let's say, terrible end that isn't exactly like a tragedy, because you can do the same thing with a tragedy, I would argue, uh, and that would still be prescriptive. Um, but this is more like, hey, guys, if we develop, uh, I don't know, I'm just thinking of every Ghibli film. And it's like, hey, guys, let's not resurrect the, uh, let's say, fantasy version of the nuclear weapon, because it didn't work last time. And if we do it, it won't work this time either type of type of deal. Can you think of Nate of any speculative fiction that instead of being a warning or instead of really focusing on the horror of the consequences of a change in setting that has like a, a positive outcome? I would say Starship Troopers is definitely an example, but it's very much one of those like uh political diatribe type things, even though I uh like the setting. But uh there's trying to think of others off the top of my head it's just like pessimism is very popular in speculative fiction because it resonates a lot with the type of people who promote literature uh because like forewarnings are a power uh, like are a powerful thing especially in retrospect like people love to talk about dystopian novels and compare our current situation to stuff that was speculated about in the 70s and 80s and before even and uh 
it, it's why those kind of books kind of catch on after the fact, more so even. So, like, stuff like Snow Crash, 1984, and, like, Brave New World especially, I think. Uh, but when it comes to, like, positive stuff, it's uh, often dismissed later on as naive, and people don't go back and address it. Like, uh, Star Trek was a big victim of this, where it was very optimistic in that humanity will develop these technologies that will allow us to facilitate mass space exploration and uh, a more uh, stable and quote-unquote equitable society, I guess. I don't like using that word, but I'm trying to think of something equivalent off the top of my head. But, uh, but then, as time went on, and it did not it did not appear that humanity's uh, optimistic space futurism of the 50s through the 70s was going to come true in a timely fashion uh the show kind the shows kind of fell into that uh pessimistic speculation stuff like uh deep space 9 and stuff took a more uh, like critical look at the setting's premise and uh I'm trying to I'm still trying to think of a more uh like less mainstream, super optimistic example, but I think it's you're good right to, that to there fo- aren't many. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's good to focus on some of the mainstream ones, right? So I'll, I'll add one in, and we'll talk about the ones we mentioned. I'm thinking of something like this is a weird example, but Atlas Shrugged. So uh, with Atlas Shrugged, they end up having. Um, I always pronounce it wrong. Gulch, Gulch, right? So you've got like the, the, essentially they call it Atlantis as well. And they end up forming the perfect libertarian state at the end. And you mentioned things coming off as naive, right? So like the, the speculative speculation, if you're wondering how the hell is Atlas Shrugged speculative? Well, if you have a expansion of a socialist state and across the, basically across the world. So all socialist states what's going to happen right and then then it happens um the characters actually are kind of weak in atlas shrugs they're kind of weak in all of uh, rand's works um, partly for the reason why i think that a lot of positive speculative fiction gets ignored i mean positive or not ignored but looked at as naive part of it is definitely because we're like two to four times more sensitive to negative emotion than we are positive and so the negative, the pessimism is always going to be more evocative to us, I think. Uh, it's always going to seem deeper and more profound. But I think another problem with something that's positive is that it's positive. What do I mean by that? It posits something. And it's much easier to tear something down or to forewarn about something that won't work than it is to actually put forward an idea that necessarily will work. So anything that is positive, that posits uh, an optimistic view of the future, right, has a positive vision of the future, is necessarily going to be easier to critique as time goes on. Um, And also, it's more likely to be, let's say, it's more likely to become a false idol, to use a Nietzschean word, which is an ideal. And an ideal always falls short of the reality. And so I think that's why they get those critiques. Um, For those who who haven't uh, either seen the film or read the book, let's talk about uh, Starship Troopers a little bit. I think that one would be interesting to, to cover about how that's, you know, 
what what did tell us Nate in Starship Troopers? What is it that is a speculative setting element or elements? There's a couple, I suppose. And what is the result of those setting elements being in place? Starship Troopers takes place in a future in which the democracies of the 20th century, well, at the time of writing 20th century, gave way to gradual decay and uh, resulted in global conflict. And, and from the conflagration and social problems of that global conflict, eventually a sort of militarist coup tried to establish a Roman-style citizen's republic from the earth and like of all the other speculative elements though those are important the core one is probably the idea of a citizen service based uh social model so in the world of starship troopers for those who haven't seen the film or the book even though it's kind of a meme at this point uh the idea is you perform a social service for the society for a period of time and it's generally grueling and that is how you get the right to vote uh, it is still like a rep mostly a representative political system like we would have in the United States or Europe. However, the franchise is extremely limited to those who are quote-unquote stakeholders, and the stakeholding comes from your social service. So he uh, Robert Heinlein sets up this society and then tries to come up with its polar opposite to reflect like a cold war mentality so like how the united states and capitalist west had the soviet union and red china he wanted an equivalent so he created the arachnid empire which is like not their what they call themselves but we have no adequate way to communicate with them because they're truly alien life forms but he refers to them as the ultimate communal life form. So, like, while the Federation, which is the the Citizens Republic of the Humans, have like this system that is dedicated to like exceptional individuals who are willing to put forth and sacrifice, their opposition is super replaceable communal life forms that all seek to uh advance the whole and these life forms both want the same spaces but are mutually incompatible so a conflict between them is inevitable so the rest of the speculation usually comes how do these creatures well how do us and these creatures get from place to place how do we engage in combat etc etc and uh but yeah, the core of it is the conflict between these two views of social organisms. And like, uh, Heinlein considers um, the two organizations of the societies to be perfect for the biology of, and psychology, evolutionary speaking, of these creatures. So he considers what he came up with in Starship Troopers to be like the human ideal looking through hi out history, although you can of course debate that. And then he would argue that the bugs society is perfect for their biology. Mm, yeah. So <laughs> what's interesting about that is this, you notice the speculative elements don't quite get in this particular case to the very end point of the plot. Like however the plot might end, um, it, the, the, result is you know we've already come to the end of our expert or, or speculation which is that when these two di very very different let's say 
uh, intractably different forms of being encounter one another, their only uh, way of interacting will essentially end up being war because they are antithetical to each other's entire mode of being so much so that they can't communicate. Uh, what I find interesting about that is it it means that with speculative fiction, there is, a, I think, a degree of freedom that you have with the plot and a degree of freedom that you have with the characters that you don't necessarily have when, we, when we'll talk about when we get into prescriptive fiction because you could kind of have any type of plot ongoing while you're performing your speculative fiction, right? Because the speculative fiction, it's really about that setting element change. And then within that setting that's been altered, you look at any given conflict and see how it goes, right? The, you know, Starship Troopers happens to be about, well, Starship Troopers. And so we get a war story, but it could have been about someone on Earth whose, I don't know, family members, well, like Rico, right? Like, so their family members died when the Earth got hit by the uh, meteor sent in by the uh, arachnids. And it might have had to do with some other form of civil servant. It might have had to do with someone who refused the civil service and what life was like from that point of view. So you can kind of move the plot around because the speculation is so deeply rooted in the setting, um, as opposed to, I think, prescriptive. And I think now is probably a good time to, oh, actually, before we before we move on, I wanted to give one more example that's probably popular um, in terms of the setting dictating what's going on. And I think that is the Hunger Games. Uh, I didn't really enjoy these novels that much. Uh, I read them, I think, when I was in high school. So it's been quite a while. Um, it's been like more than 10 years now. But one thing I did notice about the Hunger Games is that there are some moral choices by the characters, but for the most part, particularly in the last book, but also in the second book quite a lot, the the setting elements dictate what is happening. There's a lot of the elements of uh, how propaganda affects the public, which kind of takes away the idea that the public has uh, like a, a free will of their own, right? Like it's okay, well, if this propaganda is successfully utilized en masse, um, then we get these results. If we have uh, society fractionated in this particular way because of, um, let's say, some prior war and social strife, like if this one particular small group has all of the nuclear weapons, um, then you know how does that result? The protagonist, um, whose name I'm suddenly forgetting, but I... Sure, I remember her sister. I think his name is Prim, like for Ennis? short for Prim, and it's something like that. I can't remember, but yeah. the point is, she doesn't I, have very much agency in the story. Um, like, and spoiler alert, but at the very, very end of the last book, she just snipes the incoming president, and uh, they don't kill her because that would be a propaganda or not propaganda, a public PR nightmare for this new, um. I can't remember if they set up like a new republic or, or whatever they do, but they're they're essentially coming to a new form of government, I believe. And at this point, Katniss, that's her name. Uh, she finds out that the people that she's been teamed with are kind of just as evil as the people who came before. And so she's like, nah, I'm just going to... I think they actually are the reason her sister got killed or something. But the point is, 
she can kill the the person coming in as president and it's not going to stop the whole machine from moving. And I think that that is really core to something that's speculative as opposed to prescriptive because whether she killed that person or not does not affect the end. It does not affect the outcome, really. The plot is, in a sense, somewhat divorced from the speculative elements um, in terms of how it resolves. Not like the specific details that fill out the the plot events, but the the abstract way that the plot resolves as to communicate the theme. Um, I, I think this also plays into why speculative fiction may be less popular than stuff that is prescriptive but has speculative elements is that the reality of the world sometimes, and building a realistic world, is that more often than not, most people are just, like, elements of, like, small cogs that are caught up in this grand machine all the time. And, uh, it's, although that is very relatable, it's not what people tend to read fiction for. The idea of just seeing what other people's, uh, miserable future existences might be like. But, uh, I mean, you can still spin that in a positive way. Because, like, in Starship Troopers, like, Rico is certainly uh, glad to be participating in this system to protect his homeworld and stuff. But, um, understandably, it often, like, at least in a lot of science fiction, it tends to just be, oh, we are in this horrible situation due to our hubris and lack of foresight in our technological development. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's a good thing these elements, the speculative and prescriptive elements, are often mixed, right? Um, yes. Like I would argue, the very first line, it's I think it's in an, um, I think the epigraph is the right name. I always mix up epigraph and epithet, and they don't mean the same thing at all. Um, but the epigraph at the beginning of uh, Starship Troopers, I think, is the famous line from the film: uh, "Come on, you apes, you want to live forever?" Like that uh, is a kind of positive if you want to call it well, i would call it positive i'm sure some people wouldn't but i, I really it gets you pumped up you read that and you're thinking and immediately you you want to participate in the story you want to participate in this world despite the fact that you as an individual don't make the difference but the group of individuals you know working and it's it's sort of like you yourself are going to become the new king and save the world like in a lot of, let's say, fantasy stories or something like that. But the individuals en masse playing their roles um, will perhaps make a difference given the, the set of circumstances, that kind of thing. With that being this said... Brings, oh, I was going to say, this no, brings no. up a tangent in which uh, I was going to talk about how there's... I'll, it'll be real quick, but I wanted to address that, that uh, I have come across that there are two types of power fantasies. There is the power fantasy that you as the individual are, like, uh, very powerful and can solve all the problems. And then there is the, what I call, the G.I. Joe fantasy, which is the idea that you are competent, but you are also surrounded by all kinds of other people who can make up for your weaknesses. And together, you guys can resolve pretty much any challenge, despite any individual shortcomings you have. And what you were addressing is, well, talking about is, to me, the G.I. Joe power fantasy. <laughs> yeah oh that's actually a, you might think that's gentle and it kind of is tangential but it is definitely worth thinking about because now my brain wants to go to uh relating that to successful and unsuccessful power fantasies and i think actually the gi joe 
fantasy is superior because it makes a character that is uh, more relatable and also has places where you know you you can actually have tension they can't just do everything and anything so therefore they're dependent and that dependent that dependence makes their success contingent upon those dependents but that's a whole other conversation we might get into it with prescriptive fiction a little bit hopefully uh but thank you actually that's that's interesting all right so prescriptive fiction i'll give my definition for this uh you can probably kind of guess it by now but for formality's sake we'll do it so the theme is if in this setting or plots uh, or situation circumstance and choices are made by the characters, the described moral outcome will be the result. So it's focused on the choices made given a set of uh, circumstances as opposed to the set of circumstances dictating forward. So this is like, you know, if the protagonist chooses X, the result will be Y, um, as opposed to if X develops uh, the result will be why you can see where one has agency assumed and the other one doesn't. Um, I've already mentioned this lends itself to soft fantasy, but also hard fantasy. Uh, and this obviously you could cross the lines between science fiction and fantasy, depending on how you're defining those. Um, this uses prescriptive fiction that is uses symbols and archetypes more than it does. Uh, let's say a specified single change right so where we were talking about specific counterfactuals uh, upon which speculations are made prescriptive fiction is looser than that the whole world can be different like there's no real limitation because it's about communicating the moral lesson not about being exactly precise uh, about how a, a change in setting would necessarily change all the other elements um, I already mentioned the moral uh, focus on moral choices, um, but that also focuses more on flawed characters and their particular internal conflicts. I think uh, you know that to overcome those flaws or not in the case of a tragedy, this is the world as theater of action. Uh, so that's again from Jordan Peterson. The idea as instead of thinking of the world as objects, you think of the world as a place to act right? You're focused on what you do, not necessarily, you know, it's more important what you do with the cup in this, in this mode of thought than it is what the cup specifically is. Um, and I would say where with speculative fiction, oftentimes you're thinking into the future, um, with prescriptive fiction, we are more often hearkening to wisdom of the past. We're trying to take, uh, you know, the, the fact that the symbolisms, symbolism works, I would argue, is because our ancestors evolved a certain pattern recognition based on what helped them survive and what didn't. And we, uh, as modern human beings, see that in symbolic imagery, even when we've never been exposed to it before. Obviously, we develop our culture-specific symbols as well on top of those. But the idea is, it is of the past coming forward, trying to teach us something. Um, yeah, so that's my long diatribe on prescriptive as opposed to speculative fiction. Do you have any thoughts on pres- yeah, prescriptive fiction, Nate? Yeah, yeah, it was uh, the, the your description of it reminds me a lot of like a narrative version of the world of forms in uh, ancient Greek philosophy. The idea that like, uh, the things in the story are very representative of, like, the ideal form of something, or, like, just 
platonic form is that that it comes from plato doesn't it anyway yeah yes it uh, does yeah that's it so yeah um i'm trying to think of what else i was going to say on that topic but i got trapped in the idea of like it being platonic forms in fiction format well that's but, a good good place to jump off of right because there's two different real interpretations of the idea of the forms uh, I often badmouth Plato, um, partly because I recognize when I realized that Plato was the source of a bunch of nonsense I don't like, partic- particularly wokeism, um, that got really annoying. Uh, but also, uh, I started to read Nietzsche and then realized, like, I, I was questioning, like, why do you badmouth Socrates so much? Then I went and read the uh, essentially dialogues for socrates and other things where socrates is talking and obviously that's all through the mouth of or it's by the hand of plato through the mouth of socrates and all you have to do is get through any of the works that feature socrates and you'll notice that his character transforms about halfway through uh where he starts out being this kind of greek skeptic and then he turns into essentially an evil like evil wizard uh, and kind of leading he, he kind of is guilty of what he was charged with, which is leading the youth astray because he's pulling him into a kind of death cult. And if you don't believe me, read the dialogues and then get to the end of the dialogues <laughs> where he talks about death and how death is the ultimate freedom for the philosopher because he's released from this mortal coil that limits him and he gets to go into the realm of forms. So it's dangerous. You know, Neoplatonism and Platonism in general, It's there. there's a danger in, um, let's say, a worship of these ideals that are not real. Again, I called them false idols earlier. But also, go ahead, Nate. I I was going to say, I think that to some extent, sometimes that that is just an inevitable aspect of believing in the metaphysical. It's that uh, if you have a metaphysical outlook on the world, and I know we have a lot of friends who believe in metaphysical concepts, but uh, if you have a metaphysical outlook on the world, you are more willing to uh sacrifice the material to um to accomplish things or to escape things or to affect like ideological change and sometimes that's a good thing sometimes that's even necessary uh like the crusades against like islamic occupations and stuff could have only been happened probably as a result of like the metaphysical constructs of christianity to motivate the animus of the europeans to push back against the islamic invasions but uh i don't so uh i'm trying to relate this back to storytelling but i got trapped on the history stuff but yeah uh, i I think that (laughs) go ahead uh, well it relates to what i was about to say is that we as human beings i think actually need ideals even though they're false Right. So this is something that uh, and you talked about the meta- metaphysical versus the physical. I uh, maybe I think we're probably both in this space. Um, you can could, you could let me know, Nate, and I think it'll be interesting, uh, even if it is an aside from the writing to talk about. So uh, I came to to think about the metaphysical as actually being inseparable from the physical which is a kind of a, a collapsing of the metaphysical into the physical. And I really started thinking this way after I read a lot of Taoism. Um, and maybe the Taoism just scrambled my brain because it'll do that to you. But 
there's a realization that, uh, uh, without getting too deep into it, that the differentiation of objects that we human beings have, so our ability of discernment, uh, is fundamentally predicated on our ability to think in dichotomies, which is absolutely necessary. I'm not, I'm not dismissing it. So what that means is I can understand the idea of a table because I can understand there are things that aren't tables, right? So there's table and its opposite, which lets me distinguish it. And then it just start applying that to every idea, every word, every object, every person, right? That's the idea of exclusivity versus inclusivity. So a thing is a thing because it isn't all things. It's a, it's a thing because it excludes things that aren't it, uh, particularly its opposition or its negation. Um, and then for those of you who are hearing me say the word negation in this fashion, I promise I'm not a Hegelian wizard. I also dislike the Hegelian wizards. <laughs> because some people will hear, will hear these words and they will, uh, they, they will kind of freak out. But um, what am I saying all that for? Well, the metaphysical and the physical, I actually think that difference is the same kind of, uh, I don't want to call it an illusion, but I don't have a better word right now, illusion. Like the reality is that this table that I'm sitting at isn't actually separate from the air or the ground or anything else when you start to get small enough down on the atomic level. Um, it the the atoms like you know there's air molecules that are positing themselves on the table in very weak bonds and then some bits of the table are surely flaking off at the atomic level and the same thing is true with all the objects now you can say and i i would say as a human being i don't care about that because it it does not relate to my you know, phenomenological experience as a human being. I care about being able to act in the world, right? I care about being able to um, find my way. And so getting back to storytelling and the metaphysics, the reality is that what we view as metaphysical is actually the physical world. It's the same place. It's like there, there, is, no, there is no separate realm there is the world that we're in that we don't have access to, but that we have a phenomenological experience of that is akin to maps. If you've read Jordan Peterson's Maps of Meaning, you'll know what I'm talking about. So how do we, how do we tie that back into prescriptive fiction? I think prescriptive fiction provides ideals. Those ideals are necessarily wrong. They're in error to some degree, and they're in error because they are not the thing in itself they are our, let's say, understandings of those things. So they're shadows on the wall that we can see, but just like a real shadow on a wall, I don't know if you've ever um, about to be jumped on the street, but it's, real, it's really useful if you are, if it's day, daylight out or if you're in a street light to look for the shadows creeping up behind you because you can predict when someone's about to attack you when they're by looking at their shadow, right? Now, you're not seeing the person, but you can still hopefully avoid getting punched or, you know, bashed in the back of the head or stabbed or something. Um, so I think that prescriptive fiction does posit false ideals, but just because ideals are false does not mean they're useless. Uh, it just means that they will need to be uh, essentially updated and reinterpreted over time to clear out the errors as circumstances 
as because the circumstances are never 100% the same from given situation to given situation. Um, I don't know. What do you think about all that, Nate? I, I think, uh, I think that you're definitely on the right track of like the idea that just because something is false does not mean like it's doesn't mean it's useless. Uh, I think that, um, being a bioessentialist, I believe uh, that there was a reason that we developed belief in quote-unquote false or things we cannot see, obviously. Uh, ancient man, earliest man, lived in a state of perpetual religious intoxication and saw significance in everything in the world to a spiritual degree. And uh, this is probably one of the reasons why stories became so important and ingrained in human cultures and societies and why everybody has stories and everybody has myths and uh, why the role of creating these things is very important in society and having art and such. I think that it's very important for our relationship with the world on an even biological level to have metaphysical things and uh, to try and relate those things, uh, to relate unlike things in a mental continuum of such, I guess. But yeah, uh, that's all I had to add, really. I think that there's a fundamental biological aspect to it as well. Uh, it reminds me of, like, I, I'm pretty sure it's debunked, but the idea of the bicameral mind is an example, like, trying to understand the biological origins of why people... Uh, have these fixations with the unreal and the unnatural. Yeah, and I think they have these fixations because having the fixations in a strange way makes one more in accord with what is most fundamentally real. What do I mean by in accord? Because um, I, I end up having to use that word a lot. Uh, uh, you read it a lot when you read the Taoist literature, that's where my use of it comes from, but also the Buddhist literature, they say it quite a lot too, um, is that you could think of the fundamental reality as being like a melody. And if you move in accord with the melody, you're in harmony with it. You're not going to run into things that uh, might be otherwise obstacles, right? So if I move in accordance with the location of a door, I go through the doorway. But if I move out of accord or in discord with the location of a doorway, I run into a wall, or at the very least, I don't enter into the building that I wanted to enter into because I'm moving antagonistically against reality. It's like literally running your head up against a wall and saying, why is this wall here? And so an example that might fit was what we were talking about. Uh, I was just thinking about The Road by Cormac McCarthy. Um, now, oftentimes when I talk about Cormac McCarthy, I'm really fixated on the prose. But in this case, I'm more uh, focused on the, the setting because I actually think The Road is prescriptive. I don't necessarily think it's, de it's speculative um, because you could set The Road in a number of settings the only important part about the situation is that it's extremely dire and perhaps doomed, but you could also argue that that's like the state of man, right? Like we're kind of always in a state of, you know, things decaying, falling apart and, you know, depending on your disposition, seeming hopeless. Um, 
you know, if I, I can think of a number of ways to make the road or a number of settings to make the idea of the road work, but the fundamental aspect that I think makes it prescriptive, and if you disagree, Nate, let me know, is that the story fundamentally, the theme is that it is there is some type of greater spiritual significance in carrying the fire and moving forward despite the fact that everything seems hopeless like that there there is some meaning despite the fact that everything very well or not even very well may it's everything will perish right everything is going to die and decay and be destroyed all things will come to an end and yet there is meaning and significance and purpose and worthwhileness with not just surviving but also in a sense carrying a morality that makes the individual uh, I use a Nietzschean, Nietzschean sense, affirm his own being in the world. Like that is like, if you hold on to that and you keep moving, that is better. That would, I, I would argue that's like the theme of the road is like carry the, like if you are willing to carry the fire, uh, you will find significance in even the most desperate of situations in which there is, there otherwise would be no hope. Um, so why am I saying that? Well, it doesn't deny the reality of the speculative fiction where the speculative fiction kind of acknowledges that the individual isn't really the one to make the difference in the world. The setting does often, you know, our time and place do dictate much about our, our lives and what we can and can't accomplish. However, even with the prescriptive comes in and says is, yeah, that might be true, but within the level of the individual, your your choices actually still do matter and they still do have an impact. All right. So I rambled about the road for a while. Um, what do you think, Nate? Yeah, uh, the, I would argue that the road is a very prescriptive story. The speculative element of the end of the world is left very vague and it's not ad like ever super well explained what exactly is happening. All that you know is that there is a bad thing happening. Society no longer maintains its cohesion, and this man must protect his son in a inhospitable wasteland, and he just has to keep moving despite all the horrifying things he is forced to behold. <laughs> so yeah, it's a very prescriptive story despite having like a loosely speculative setting and you could probably set it in a whole bunch of other times in history or alternative settings. Yeah. Are there any other prescriptive stories that um, you want to throw out there to the, to the listeners? Hmm. I think the, I would argue, uh, it's hard to argue this one. Okay, so I think that one of the like biggest balances between prescriptive and speculative would pro in the in like common parlance would probably be Dune, because like the core story of Dune could probably be set anywhere in history, because like most of history there have been like valuable resources, noble houses, and imperial leadership vying for like supre political supremacy in various situations. Uh, but the speculative elements are also really well done. It is very well communicated what is happening, what the stakes are, why this stuff is the way it is. Uh, trying to think of something more strictly prescriptive besides the obvious ones we've already brought up. Star Wars is another one that's definitely prescriptive. Uh, 
Yeah. Star Wars is incredibly prescriptive because it's like you have to choose between the two sides of the force, right? Like it's you know. later stuff, later stuff kind of like, well, not later, but like there was a period in time when they were trying to play with that a little bit, but they eventually dropped it entirely when Disney bought it. But it's it's not it's not important. What is, uh, uh, Lord of the Rings, arguably, I will say, is very prescriptive. Um, it's not very speculative at all, despite people saying it has really good world building. To a degree, it does. It's really well fleshed out in, like, where things are. Uh, the linguistics, of course, were very well done because of Tolkien's role as a linguistics professor and stuff. But, like, as far as, like, the plot... He could have set the plot in a number of different settings in a number of different ways. Uh, I have seen a dude on 4chan rewrite the plot of uh, Lord of the Rings as a cyberpunk story before. So, <laughs> as like a, a gag he was doing for a role-playing game. So, yeah, Lord of the Rings is pretty prescriptive, I would say. Yeah, I want to debate you on Dune a little bit, because I think Dune is way more speculative. Um, the reason why I think that is because of the hyperfixation on the peoples being a product of their environment. Uh, we talked about this during our podcast, uh, which I re- the only reason I'm remembering this right now is because I just cut it up into shorts uh, yesterday. But uh, the Sardaukar versus the Space Muslims, I think that's the name. Actually, I, I put it in the shorts. I might get kicked off of YouTube. <laughs> but but the Sardaukar are super badass because their plan is awful, right? And then the uh, the Freemen are even more badass because their planet is even more awful. Um, <laughs> and you know you have uh, Maud Dib, uh, Paul, uh, yeah, Paul Atreides, um, and he. Sorry, I, I think of Maud Dib because every time I read it out loud, I'd pronounce it Maud Dib. Um, I also pronounce all the like when they go like I I go I uh, which I don't know what that says about me, but it's a lot of fun when you read the book that way. But I'm um, talking about the speculative element of Dune. Even Paul's vision suggests a let's say kind of deterministic line where he he kind of given the set of circumstances, these things will come to pass, and he really can't. He keeps trying to find ways to avoid the fate, and he, and he, I'm pretty sure he continuously fails. I, I didn't read past the first book because when I picked up, I think it's Dune Messiah is the second book. Uh, it seemed like the writing just dropped off a cliff in terms of the quality of prose, um, and I, I, I just, I couldn't get through it. But my understanding is that the the, I don't is he? You tell me, Nate. Is he able to stop the space jihad? No. No, he is not. <laughs> okay, well then, yeah, that's very that then then that's very speculative, right? Because it's like he he's trying to find ways to make decisions to stop these series of events, and his premonitions aren't magic; they are essentially hyper brain calculations. If I understand Dune Dune's setting correctly, yeah, it, it's if you are aware of the uh, of uh, one of its precursors, Foundation which is one of the original, quote, like, Space Empire books, the main characters in that story develop what's called psychohistory, or the ability to analyze, like, mass events in history based on, like, calculations and figures and trajectories and stuff. It's very, like, like Spanglerian, 
But yeah, it essentially cribs that a little bit. Yeah, so do we think it's fair to say that uh, that Dune falls perhaps more on the speculative line than it does on the prescriptive line? Unless there's particular prescriptive elements, but I, I just can't think of any. It seems like everything is based on the situation. I would still say that a lot of like the fundamental themes of the story are transplantable, uh, that it doesn't need some of the speculative elements to have made its story, but that could probably be debated. Um, but in turn, uh, what do you think? Uh, as far as like the themes of people being products of their environments being done in another setting, obviously Conan the Barbarian shows that like people from savage backgrounds tend to have a different character than those of civilized backgrounds, and the the title character being an example of someone who is very uh competent and powerful due to his savage upbringing. So, uh, but maybe just. Maybe having all of Dune's, like, elements together is kind of necessary for him. Like, the speculative elements may be necessary. I don't know for certain. But. That'll have to be a debate for another time. Because I want to get into the blurred settings. I'm saying blurred settings as opposed to blurred genres. Because here on the Wild Out podcast, uh, I, your host, have a particular set of arguments about the word genre i think genre fundamentally belongs to um or rather should be defined as telos telos to what a human being uh rooted in a human being's biology meaning um the different genres do something to each of our biological systems uh, whether that be our dopaminergic or serotonergic systems um whether those be the adrenal system like the fight or flight response or the freeze response when you're stricken with awe um or like the erotic responses that we have like you can map on specific genre types that are made to activate those systems um so i'm not talking about that what i am talking about though is the the setting in regard to how it fits in with speculative and prescriptive fiction because as we have discussed many times off the microphone um back in the pulp era there were not clear lines between what we would now call science fiction and fantasy so given our conversation so far that we we really can delineate that some stories are primarily speculative and other stories are primarily prescriptive uh what do we make of the fact that these delineations that go with these science fiction and fantasy in general uh, you know how do we how do we parse this because very clearly it gets kind of blurry and, and fuzzy yeah oh uh so whenever we get into the blurry era of uh spec well i'm calling it speculative fiction but by your definitions i'm gonna say a lot of stuff from that era tends to be descriptive in which the uh the speculative elements are mainly there for spice uh to confront a character with a situation but mostly it's about like the conflict between characters in a uh non-speculative manner but it would of course depend on the story like uh lovecraft despite writing like supernatural horror and science fiction stuff at the same time uh i would say shadow out of time is a very speculative story because like it's so its premise is so bizarre that it's very like it's hard to imagine it transplanted into another form and that its speculative element 
for those I I I'm going to spoil a 100-year-old story, but <laughs> the in Shadow Out of Time, the idea is this guy has had his mind swapped with an alien life form uh from a race of people from a different time who, who use some kind of weird time travel method to swap minds with different people throughout history to try and experience and catalog the breadth of time. Uh, so I have a hard time imagining that specific story being um, set anywhere else, so it's probably very speculative. Um, but most of the time, it's like uh, pulp people we're always trying to find new things to like put their characters through. So it's not necessarily that there were like concrete and logical cohesive settings like in Conan, the barbarian in tower of the elephant, like there's no science fiction elements leading up to that story. And there's no science fiction elements in like the first major parts of that story. But then suddenly this setting has aliens now. <laughs> Yeah, and but that's, yeah. I think, where we see the difference, right? Because we mentioned before, like, Star Wars, it's got all this technology and such, but it's not really speculative. Um, there's not an attempt to make that fit. And so I think really what we're seeing here is that um, the, let's say, science part of the science fiction um, and the fantasy elements, those were mixed together Um but we could perhaps still draw sharper lines. We wanted to really define these setting forms or really their thematic delivery or thematic focuses, thematic types, maybe. Um, I'll have to think of a better way to describe it. But we could we could split more easily down those lines than we could strictly about the setting because there was, you know, it, it's not like today where we have what people call genre conventions. Um, which I also hate that. I hate genre conventions as much as I hate the word tropes. I think that those quote-unquote genre conventions largely came from a period in time, and I, I'm trying to think of what magazine did this, but um, there, I think it was Analog, did a bit in one of their magazines doing a side-by-side -side comparison of a science fiction story and then an identical Western story. It's just, you know, you'd replace the space words with Western words. And it was done as a joke to deride uh, fiction that just uses the setting as window dressing. And so there was a kind of, the, there was a developing, I guess, elitism towards speculative fiction in some science fiction circles. And uh, that probably led to the kind of schism that we ended up having between things that are more speculative, focusing on the raw, hard setting elements, as opposed to, like, it being window dressing for the character stuff. Um, yeah, that's an interesting place to talk about, too. This We're, we're, we're getting to the end of the particular subject matter, but th that opened a door that I'd like to um, go through, and that has to do with the, let's say, elitism that comes forward and then we get a divide and we used to talk about this uh, a long time ago nate so uh this is way way before i started doing the podcast years ago i think that we actually started talking about this before i went to grad school so that was pre-2017 and that is this difference between a fixation on um what at the time we talked about in terms of genre versus 
uh, literary fiction. Um, now, I hate both of those terms. I, I think they're neither one describe anything really. Um, but I, I do think that in the minds of the public, something like that dichotomy has still, it still lingers, right? Like there's this idea that the construction of a piece of fiction um, is either like fun and engaging and uh, of, and uh, you can almost think of it like, uh, like populist fiction in a way. And if it's yeah. not populist fiction, then it's this kind of um, snotty, elite, perhaps academic fiction that no one likes reading. Um, but uh, so do you still see that around? Do you, do you see that in the minds of people? Uh, I would say that there is certainly an element of it. There's a, like, I think it's more a thing in people who consider like in academic perspectives. It's like people who are super dismissive of genre fiction and primarily read literary fiction more so than like people who read a lot of genre fiction and will delve into literary fiction that interests them. I think that that these days, at least, that's a very one sided thing. Um, at least to the people I've talked to who heavily read from, like, across a spectrum of books. Uh, there's... I I primarily see this attitude in my daily... Like, in my day-to-day, -day, talking to people on Lit from 4chan, which is a uh, the literature board. Uh, there is a lot of literary elitism there, in which their, like, genre fiction is heavily dismissed. Uh, which is funny considering the origins of the board, uh, origins of the website, but whatever, not important. But yeah, it tends, yeah, it's, it tends to be, uh, it's not necessarily that people there are incapable of enjoying genre fiction. It's just, they don't like discussing it very much because they think there's less to discuss than in literary fiction. And I think that literary fiction or like i i too hate the labels oftentimes but uh i think it certainly has its place and i'm not gonna pretend that it's all snotty elitism because there is some good stuff that gets labeled that but uh as far as like derision it's very rare that somebody who reads primarily genre fiction will just dismiss all of like academically enjoyed like literary fiction out of hand the same way an academic will dismiss genre fiction to some degree I, i've started to see it um now you mentioned amongst people who are broadly read um and i've noticed it amongst those who are narrowly read let's say if we use the term genre versus literary fiction uh for the sake of conversation i've noticed people who are only read in genre fiction tend to have the same attitude as the people who only read literary fiction. And so it's, it's probably a matter of, um, you know, those people who stick in a particular circle tend to look down on you know, those others because it, it elevates their own, uh, let's say, value to be on the, you know, on the right side of things. But I want to tie this back because I think this actually ties back into speculative and prescriptive fiction through the idea of, um, let's say, setting merely being window dressing. Um, and then I think that the listeners can, be, uh, can leave this podcast with a, a bit of a lesson I think would be good for them. So here's the idea. 
instead of thinking in terms of genre or literary um, or anything of the sort, I think we should think of our fiction as accomplishing its goal. Um, now, the goal of fiction is kind of twofold. It's it's communicating and arguing for its theme, which is like the thesis of its, its work. So that's where speculative and prescriptive comes in because we have two different types of themes. Um, but it's it's doing so by playing upon a particular set of emotions that we have. Otherwise, we'd be writing an essay and not fiction, right? The point of writing the fiction is that it it touches down uh, it touches us at an instinctive or symbolic level to some degree. We learn from stories better than we do from abstractions, even if we have the capacity to learn from the abstractions. So, with that in mind. For those authors out there listening to this writing cast, and I don't imagine anyone else bothering to listen to these writing casts, uh, <laughs> when when we go to write, rather than thinking of that divide, I think we should you should consider what is the primary type of theme that you're you're pushing, right? So, is it are you writing speculative fiction or or are you writing prescriptive fiction? Is it the moral choices that matter, or is it the um, let's say, setting elements and how they're altered that matter. And I think when we think in that way, naturally, we would start to incorporate the, let's say, the setting elements and the character elements and the plot elements together in a way where nothing feels arbitrary. Now, that's not to say that they're all going to be equally important. In speculative fiction, the setting is just going to be more important that that's how it is and in prescriptive fiction the character choices so essentially the elements of the character and plot they're going to be more important than the setting and i think that's inescapable based on what the the, the theme types are however i think if you see something as that, that is in a sense merely window dressing that means merely is like only it's just that that if it is perfectly interchangeable with any other setting you know, like you mentioned before, you could just literally change the words and everything works perfectly. Then perhaps I would say the problem isn't whether it's literary or genre. The problem is that it's weak. The problem is that there's untapped potential because you have an element of your story that is disconnected from the rest, right? Another way to say that is the story does not properly articulate itself. And the, why do I use the word articulate? Well, an articulation is a joint, right? It's a joint that facilitates movement. In the case of story, the movement is, uh, it's like a, a figure of speech for its ability to convey its mes message properly. So a story that integrates the setting into its theme. So the setting helps the theme along. Now, again, the setting is going to help the theme along more in speculative fiction than in prescriptive fiction. Uh, that's better. And the same thing the other way around. Like if you have a piece of speculative fiction, the characters in the plot can very well help the theme be conveyed better if they are integrated together in a way that is not arbitrary and replaceable with any other way. And we should, I would argue, uh, oh, listeners, that we should think in terms of quality and uh, I don't want to say complexity because it's not exactly complexity because you can have a simple story that's really great, 
but a story in which the elements are in accord with one another, that that together they produce a more profound effect, uh, whatever that effect may be. So if you're just writing like a um, speculative fiction uh, techno thriller, um, the characters in the plot and the setting can still all come together to to produce a profound thrilling effect on the reader through the conveyance of its its theme, if that makes sense. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that, Nate? Do you think that's a better way to think about it, or do you think I've left anything out? Anything you want to add? No, I th- no, I think that's a I I think that's very useful. Oh, well, I, I hope so. I try to <laughs> I try to be here. Right. All right. Uh, we've gone on for an hour. And I think we've covered the topic pretty well. I'm actually really happy with this conversation. Um, so before I send you away, Nate, you're sure you don't have anywhere you want to send these people so they can. No. Do you have any work? No. You still have nowhere? Come on, man. This guy's no. work is really good, but he only shows it to me. Only me very, very occasionally. He's, he, yeah. I've, sh- I've shown it to a couple other people, but no, I don't, I don't share my work very often. I just. I I am a flaw. I I am a perfectionist who is very bad at the craft. <laughs> All right, so you heard it from me, folks. Uh, harass Nate in the comments below. Tell him that <laughs> he needs to show the world his fiction. Uh, it's, he's actually very very good, um, and so that he can have somewhere to show. But until he does, harass him. And while you're you got your browser open, harassing him, go to wildoutlet.com. Consider. Uh, performing a miracle for me in these next two weeks for our Kickstarter campaign so I can commission artists to do the cover art for a set of stories that I've already written. Uh, There are a whole bunch of them, and they're really great. They're my favorite thing that I've written so far, and I want to get them out there. I want to be able to commission a choose-your-own-adventure book for like a a series of children's books that I think are going to be just fun, Um, but those are extremely expensive because you have to pay for like 20 pieces of art. So hence the Kickstarter campaign. Um, So yeah, go there, help me out there. If you're an author and you want to either improve your skills or sharpen your manuscript, check out the Wild Isle Style Guide. Uh, Go ahead and send me an email through that form and, you know, query me for a job and I will do my best to help you be the best author that you can be. Check out my fiction and my essays, particularly that Barbie film analysis and my novel Wand Smoke Broken. Remember, it's all free on audio on my website and on SoundCloud and on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts and on YouTube. You do not have an excuse. Listen to it leave a review help me out folks i am not quite starving yet but i might get there here soon thank you very much for joining us and we'll see you guys next time